0: This is Brand and New, from the International Trademark Association. This podcast series explores changes and dynamics in the legal world, now and tomorrow, with a focus on intellectual property.
1: Support comes from Ballard Spar, a national law firm with more than 50 intellectual property attorneys and professionals dedicated to securing and protecting IP rights worldwide. We're proud to partner with clients to help fuel innovation one idea at a time. Learn more at BallardSpar.com.
0: Welcome to Brand New. I am Audrey Dove. The episode you are listening to is the second and last part of the podcast dedicated to Justice Ginsburg's legacy in the IP world with three exceptional guests Professor Jane Ginsburg, Professor Mary Hoffnett, and Judge Margaret McEwen. Margaret, What did it mean for you to have Justice Gilbert as your mentor? How did this
2: relationship with her also evolve uh, over the years? The relationship, as it was, began when I was in law school, and she was a law professor. And it was the very early years of cases involving sex discrimination, totally new field without a great deal of scholarship at that point. And I needed to write a paper, and I was flummoxed about, where would I get any material to write this paper? And someone suggested writing to Professor Ginsburg, who was at Columbia at the time. So totally like a cold call, I wrote to Professor Ginsburg asking for help and for materials. And she was so kind as to send back a sheaf of materials, which really saved my bacon, and I was able to write the paper. But at the time, it was such an important kindness for her to kind of reach down and help a law student, and I think indicative of how she was over the years. At the time, of course, no one could imagine she would become a Supreme Court Justice, and I'm sure my law school classmates couldn't imagine that I would become a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals. But over the years, we stayed in touch in the relationship involved. We taught together in France. We shared meals together at her home and mine. Uh, We shared opera together. And what was really always a a great surprise, she was a great correspondent, as I I am sure Mary knows in assembling biographical materials. And if you sent her anything, she would always send you another letter back, leaving you wondering whether you should send another letter back. Um, You know, she was a great correspondent. And as a judge, What I really see in her opinions is the economy of the writing. Every word matters, but they pack a punch in the way that she puts them together. She's known particularly, of course, for her dissents. And it's interesting that those are not by and large in the intellectual property field, but in other fields. And as a judge, what I think is most remarkable is that she doesn't have what I call a mean pen. She doesn't attack those in the majority. Instead, she lets her dissent stand on its own two feet. So I think in both her writing, in her presence, and, and really how she dealt with people, there was a dignity that really befits someone on the highest court in the United States. And there was also this warmness. She could seem very shy which I think she was down deep. And yet when she came out of that and when she dealt with you one-on-one, you really saw not only what a incredibly deep and remarkable person she was, but how much she
3: cared about people. Uh, I would just pick up on on one small point about the dissents. And uh, she, she always said that you should write a dissent as if it were the majority opinion. And, Occasionally, they even became majority opinions, Uh, although that was relatively rare. But that was her approach to to writing dissent. So it wasn't to respond to the majority. It was rather to make the affirmative case. Talking about a remarkable and inspiring relationship, anything uh, you could
2: share with us about Justice Ginsburg and her late husband, Martin Ginsburg? I think that everybody knows they had this incredible partnership that started when they met at Cornell. And she never tired of telling the story of how she met and how. Marty had no problem of having a friend and later wife with a brain and how important that was. He was a huge supporter of her career. He was really, you know, the home cheerleader. And yet he also had a very distinguished career as a tax lawyer and a a tax professor. One thing I think that I always laughed about is that when we think of Justice Ginsburg, we step back in awe because she seems to be good at everything, everything that she does. And there is one exception, and that's cooking. She is not any good at cooking. Jane may be able to talk about that. But Marty was a fantastic cook, chef, and bread baker. So last year, when we had the anniversary of the 19th Amendment, in which women were uh, given the right to vote, uh, we put together a cookbook and. Uh, When we asked her for recipes, of course, she said, well, I'll give you some from Marty because, of course, uh, she did not cook. But I didn't find many other things that she didn't do. And, you know, he, he also didn't seem to be jealous of her position. One time we're out to eat and, of course, she became pretty well known. And after leaving the restaurant, the people are cheering for Justice Ginsburg, the people back in the kitchen and the patrons And then Marty is behind her and and walks out. And, of course, there's dead silence. And he says, well, now you can see the acclaim one gets as a tax professor. (laughs) So he had a very dry wit, and he had this incredible love and admiration for Ruth. And on the cooking front, if I might
1: add, I think we were all really concerned after Marty died in 2010, would the justice continue to eat? Because we knew she wasn't going to cook. And luckily, Jane filled that void immediately. Jane would is modest uh, like her mother was and wouldn't tell you this, but Jane is a, a fabulous chef and uh, maybe learned this from her father or on her own. But uh, so she filled that void immediately and she came to visit from New York. She would come to Washington about once a month, I think. Jane, jump in if I'm wrong, and would uh, prepare these amazing gourmet meals that she would freeze with specific directions. Because remember, Justice Ginsburg would probably put a foil pan in the microwave if you let her. So, <laughs> so Jane would explain everything, which sauce went with what, and, and the Justice uh, continued throughout her life to eat gourmet meals.
0: Thank you for sharing this. Support comes from Ballard Spar, a
1: national law firm dedicated to advancing women attorneys at the firm and within the legal profession. We support our female lawyers through the Ballard Women Group and offer a wide range of networking, sponsorship, and mentoring programs for women at all career levels. Learn more at ballardspar.com.
0: Now I would like to talk about the notorious RBG nickname. Uh, Justice Ginsburg has been famous far beyond the boundaries of the legal and political world for quite some time. She was first, let's say, crowned with her notorious RBG nickname, a play on rapper Biggie Small's notorious B.I.G. nickname. In 2013, when a New York University law student created a Tumble R bearing the name to highlight Ginsburg's dissent in the landmark uh, Supreme Court case, uh, Shelby County v. Holder, on voting laws discrimination. And even more, Justice Ginsburg is a figure well known at the international level, uh, which is not very usual for U.S. Supreme Court justices. How do you explain this tremendous impact on people and pop culture?
2: I would only say that when all of this started bursting out and then you saw, you know, T-shirts and every other kind of uh, branded paraphernalia with RBG, I thought that she would chafe at that because she is a serious person. And I thought she might see it as frivolous. So I have to say I was quite surprised uh, that she was charmed by it in a way. And as it continued, I think. She saw it as a way to connect the court to the people because all of a sudden a justice could seem more real and there could be a little lightness in the process. So I have to say her reaction was the opposite of what I thought it might be. And it's really been quite remarkable to sit back and, and watch how this has taken off. And of course, now that we're all wearing masks, uh, you can go around and you also see masks with um, r b g on them as well and I'm sure she would endorse that prospect.
3: Well, I think she was a a, a little appalled <laughs> at some of these manifestations, I and mean, she found out that there were people getting tattoos oh, right. uh, <laughs>
1: right.
3: that that was a bit much
1: yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, sometimes I've used the term bemused, um, but I, I think one of the things that might be behind this phenomena is that it was a time when I think young people especially really needed a real hero, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, was the real thing. I think all of us know famous people, and we all know of them, and, and often people in our country and in the world they become famous because they're incredibly rich or beautiful movie stars or extremely powerful figures. And if you think about it, she it's its not that she didn't have money or power or beauty, but the reason she was a model was because she used her talent and her time, really her, her entire life, to create opportunities for people who otherwise wouldn't have them. And so I think people saw that and they saw it was real and, and they needed it. And then in the age of Internet and Twitter, things exploded. But the other point that I find fascinating is that even though she didn't completely fight this off, she did not seek this at all. She had a devoted but tiny staff. So she's not someone with publicists and agents out there drafting tweets or figuring out how to get her more attention at all. If anything, I think, Margaret, you're right, that. She shied away from it, but then I think realized that perhaps there was a reason this was happening and, and it was good for young people to be able to have a hero. So I think that's a lot of what was behind the phenomena. You know, seeing law students and we, we all seen law students and clerks and research assistants and, and what this meant to them in incredibly trying times to, to witness that firsthand.
0: You just mentioned marry uh, young people. What would you like children to know most of all about Justice Ginsburg?
1: I would like to share with young people um, something Justice Ginsburg said, and that is that she said they were her hope for the future. And I can read a specific quote um, that she said in an interview. Our country has gone through some very bumpy periods, but I'll tell you the principal reason why I'm optimistic. It's the young people I see. My lawyer granddaughter, my law clerks are determined to contribute to the good of society and to work together. So the young people make me hopeful. They want to take part in creating a better world. Think of Malala. Think of Greta Thunberg in Sweden. Yes, I'm putting my faith in the coming generations. So I think, um, end of quote, I think I would like the young people to know that uh,
2: they have a job to carry on. I would just add that think a lesson from her entire life really starting back when she was a lawyer, as I would say to kids, she made it possible for you to be who you are.
0: Now I have a few rapid fire questions for you. The first one is maybe an advice you think Justice Ginsburg would have given to the young generations again of IP lawyers that are listening to us.
3: I would uh, broaden the advice to lawyers generally, not just IP lawyers, but as both Margaret and uh, Mary have have emphasized, she never lost sight of the uh, real people who were behind these disputes, Uh, never lost sight of the uh, impact that a decision would make. Sometimes she would preface her writing by saying, uh, let, let's let see what's at stake for the parties in this case. And so, notwithstanding all the fascinating legal questions, of which IP presents many, I'd never forget the people who are behind the questions that come to the court.
0: A decision of the United States Supreme Court that every IP lawyer should read,
2: in your view? I think every IP lawyer should read the upcoming decision in Oracle v. Google, which has been argued and pending before the court. But I think lawyers should also know that IP can be fun, and in uh, copyright can be fun. So I would say go read the case of Campbell v. of Rose Music about uh, the dispute between Pretty Woman and Two Live Crew and parody. One innovation that
0: significantly disrupted the IP world.
2: One innovation, one word, the internet. A word that would summarize
0: the last year and the one you expect for this year.
2: I would say for
1: last year, uh, dreadful, and for this year, hopeful.
0: I would agree with that.
2: I also agree.
0: And my last question, the last book you read and you would recommend to our listeners.
2: I actually
1: like to reread books, and and I have a personal disclaimer to make when I'm finished telling you about it, but it, it's called Witnesses of the Unseen, Seven Years in Guantanamo. And it's the memoirs that were written by two of the innocent detainees whose case went to the Supreme Court and resulted in, in the decision in Boumediene v. Bush, which said that these um, detainees had a right to a hearing And when these men had their hearing, they were released after seven years of wrongful detention. They had been completely innocent. Um, And my full disclosure is that my two adult children helped to produce the book. So I'm (laughs) being a a shameless mother. But I I did just reread it, and um, I do recommend it.
3: The the last book that I read that I would recommend is by a French author named uh, Didier Covelart. And uh, the book is his latest. It's called L'Inconnu du 17 mars. And it's uh, sort of a a thriller. And uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, He comes out with a new book every year. (laughs) And uh, uh, I enjoy following his work.
2: I'll have to confess that I read a lot of throwaway spy novels, really just as an escape from uh, my daily job. But most recently, I did finish uh, Walter Isaacson's book on da Vinci. And apropos of uh, the intellectual property world, I think it's really such an amazing insight into somebody with a creative mind and so beautifully written. Thank you, Jane.
0: Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Margaret, for participating to this podcast. thank Thank you. Thank you. My guests today were Professor Jane Ginsberg, Professor Mary Hothnett, and Judge Margaret McEwen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Brand & New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for new episodes. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe and share it. We are always looking for new people to discover brand and new. And to learn more about INTA, its resources, and events, please visit www.inta.org.
1: Support comes from Ballard Spar, a national law firm with more than 650 attorneys committed to fostering a vibrant business community where people from all backgrounds can contribute and thrive, recognized for excellence in diversity and inclusion in gender equity. Learn more at ballardspar.com.